right, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 14 this morning, we're going to talk about the tangled webs that we weave. Anybody know anything about that in your life? Anybody ever have a, a moment where you realize that, wow, I've really kind of messed things up? Sometimes the mess up comes from the choices and decisions that we make. Today we're going to see a passage of Scripture that someone who I hope, and that the Scripture doesn't really give us the motive or the reason behind it, it's probably multifaceted, we'll talk about that in a moment, that tried to step in and help David in the midst of all of his mess, in the midst of all of his problems, and yet for all the help that he tries to offer, it really backfires and, and causes more problems uh, than David had to begin with. And so today we're going to talk about kind of these tangled webs that we weave, especially when we, we live with deception, we live with sin in our life. I can assure you of one thing, it's going to cause trouble, it's going to cause strife, it's going to cause difficulty. And we said already, and I'm going to go ahead and give you my first point because it's kind of to, to overview where we've been. As we get into chapter 14 of 2 Samuel, what we're going to find is the royal family is unraveling royally. Can we agree with that? They got some major issues in David's family. What a difference between chapter 11 and chapter 14. It is amazing how much David's life has unraveled because of the choices that he made. Now, the first thing when we consider the unraveling of David's life, it has to do with the sins of David, the father in this home. You'll remember back in chapter 12 that David had fallen into sin with Bathsheba. David had a lust issue that didn't just come about in that moment on that day, but it had been something that had been brewing inside of him because he was ignoring God's word. He was taking for himself wives and concubines. He obviously had this lust that was growing within him that made him ignore all that God had said concerning marriage. And we find that by the time we get to the end of that chapter, that David just simply saw a woman bathing on her roof, and rather than going, my goodness, what in the world, and walking off, he chose to keep watching. He made the decision, though he knew she was married, though he knew that she was somebody's daughter, he said, why don't you go get her and bring her to me? And he slept with her, and she got pregnant. And in order to cover up the pregnancy, this man after God's own heart, this man who seemed like a spiritual giant, was slain by lust and went to the length that he would try to cover up his sin by killing her husband. Remember, he tried to get the husband to lay with her. He called him back from the front line, but this was a man of integrity. This was a man who said, I won't even go home and, and sleep with my wife. Why? He simply said, because listen, the other guys, they're at battle. How can I go home and live like there isn't a war? That's where the king should have been. This man had more integrity at that point than David and David, all he could do was come up with a plan to kill this man, and that's exactly what he did. It's not just the sins of the father. We talked about the fact that the sins of the sons followed right behind. It wasn't a punishment upon the sons because the father had sinned. God isn't doing this to David's sons because David sinned. What we find is that we have to remember as parents that the sins that we commit likely will become the sins that our children commit. We forget that there are watching eyes. We forget that the way that we live will become the way that they live. And what is accepted by us will be accepted by them, even in a greater measure. And so David struggled with lust. Why are we shocked that his sons are going to struggle? David struggled with 
honesty and integrity and the way that he dealt with his sin. Why are we going to be shocked that his own sons don't deal with sin the way that they should? You see, the things that we do literally will become the things that our children do, and they're not without excuse because they too know what is right and they know what is good. But what a tragedy when sin finds its way into our families through us as parents. We become the window through which they see it, and they begin to live it out. And so now we have a son who is so caught up in lust, Amnon, that he desires his half-sister. And the half-sister has a brother whose name is Absalom. He's third in line to the throne, technically second in line at this point, because the middle son has died. You've got Amnon, you've got Chilib who has died, whether it was in war or whatever happened to him, it doesn't tell us. And then you've got Absalom. So now the number one and number two to the throne have a major issue because the oldest son is lusting after his half-sister. We know how the story went. He couldn't have her, but he wanted her anyways. He knew he couldn't marry her. So he devised a plan by which he would get her alone and he technically, well, literally, raped his own half-sister. You can imagine that Absalom must have been wondering, what is dad going to do? What is dad going to say? What in the world is going to happen now that this great and grievous sin has happened in our home? And guess what David does? Nothing. He probably felt like, what in the world could I say? You see the unraveling of this family, right? So if David's not going to do anything, Absalom, the brother, is sitting there and he's fuming for two years what was anger has become resentment, and what was resentment has become bitterness, and now he's dealing with rage, and suddenly he gets the idea that, you know what? Sounds a lot like dad. I'm going to take care of this problem, and I'm going to kill my problem. So he invited his brother over, supposedly to celebrate the harvest, and he had his servants kill him. When we get to where we are today, for two years, Absalom had to go into hiding, basically. They knew where he was. If you remember, he was king on two counts because his mother, who David married, she was a princess to the king of Gesher. So where did he go when he got exiled and where he basically knew he had to run from David's face and he had to run from anybody that was going to avenge Amnon? Absalom decides, I've got to go back to granddad. Granddad has his own kingdom. There he will still be looked at as a prince. There he will still be honored and for two years, he goes and lives there in that other kingdom. That's where we find the story today. And I want you to see that when we talk about this unraveling family, the sins of the father, the sins of the son, I want you to also see that when you have sin like this running rampant in a family, separation and destruction is all that you can expect in a scenario like this. I want to remind you, I say it over and over because I can't say it enough. We think that sin doesn't have consequences. We think that sin is no big deal. I'm telling you, wherever sin exists, death and destruction exist. And the more that sin exists, the more death and destruction exists. And when I say death and destruction, when I say things like separation, I want you to see what is happening. This family that was once close-knit, this family that once was honoring God, you look at where they are, everything has unraveled because of the father's sin, because of the son's sins. No one's making it right. No one is doing what's right. Everybody is trying to hide the depths of their sin. 
They're not talking to each other. They're not reconciling their relationships. And for two years, Absalom is in basically living away from his father, away from his brothers, away from the kingdom. But that leads us to the second thing. As we read this text together, we see that the royal family is unraveling. But as we read this text today, I want us to see some other things. And let me read the text first. It says, now Joab, this is chapter 14 of 2 Samuel. Now Joab, enter Joab into this situation. Look what it says. It says, the son of Zariah, he perceived that the king's heart was inclined towards Absalom. He recognizes that King David, his heart hurts because he's not with his son. We shouldn't be shocked by that. In chapter 13, at the very end, the last sentence, it said the same thing. The heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom. That there was a part of him that wanted a right relationship, but there was something that was standing in the way of right relationship. And folks, as much as we want to have right relationship, we have to understand that it comes on the heels of some things. Where sin is torn apart a family, there has to be reconciliation, doesn't there? But there has to be repentance. There has to be forgiveness. And for real forgiveness to really come about, there has to be the confession of sin. And literally, there's a consequence to the choices that we make. There is a cost because of our sin. And so far, none of that has been discussed in the midst of this conversation. We flip the page from 13 to 14, and all that we see is that David still just misses his son. He hasn't reached out to him. No one has done anything to reconcile this thing. And so Joab takes it upon himself that he's going to try to fix this situation. I almost titled this sermon, Mind Your Own Business. I didn't know how y'all would take that. Because Joab's going to step in and listen to what happens. It says, so Joab, knowing this about King David, he sent to Tekoa, that's a place, and brought a wise woman from there and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments, now, and mourning, make sure you see M-O-U-R-N, He's that she's mourning, you'll see the death of sons, the mourning garments now, and do not anoint yourself with oil, but be like a woman who has been mourning for the dead many days. Now, what you see here is that this is a made-up story. This is a woman who isn't really mourning. She hasn't really lost sons. Joab is about to get her to go to King David and basically lie, basically deceive. I think he thinks he's being like Nathan. Have you noticed that? This is going to sound a lot like Nathan and the prophet when he went to David about the ewe lamb. It goes on and says, Then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put words in her mouth. So these aren't her words. These are Joab's. Now, when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help me, O king. The king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Truly, I am a widow, for my husband is dead. It was not uncommon in this day for the kings to act as judges. Before there were kings, remember in Israel, there were just judges. Even in Moses' day, remember, there were so many people... Remember, his father-in-law said, listen, you got to appoint to yourself some judges. There are so many cases that need to be ruled on, so many squabbles, so many fights in families between theft and murder and all the things that can happen in a culture, in a society. He says, you can't handle all this by yourself. And so judges were raised up and leaders in every city were raised up to adjudicate these matters. But the king still had people come before him, even though he might not have been the only person that people would come to in serious matters, in serious issues. 
the king could still be approached and she does what you do. She bowed down before the king and laid in front of him and said, I need your help, king. And then she says, listen, I am a woman who has lost her husband. And now this story begins. And it is a sob story. It is a sad story that has been made up and she's been told to speak. The king said to her, what is your trouble? Truly, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. In verse six, your maidservant had two sons. But the two of them struggled together in the field, and there was no one to separate them. So one struck the other and killed him. Okay, now I have to say, doesn't David seem dense sometimes? He's already been fooled once with the ewe lamb, right? Where he tells the story of a man had lambs, and one lamb, and then the other had a ton of lambs, and then somebody came and needed to eat, and he stole the one lamb from the guy who only had one, and it was his only one and his favorite one, and though he had all these others, and remember King David just got incensed, and he was like, you know what? How could a man do that? How could a man show no compassion and take this wonderful lamb that was so loved, this precious lamb, and slay it? And then Nathan looks at him and says, oh, by the way, you're that man, right? So he, he condemned himself. Well, he, right here, he's in the same story. I mean, he should have seen himself in the story. Two sons out by themselves, one decided to kill the other, but he's dead. He doesn't see it yet. He, in fact, he's not going to see it until he already is a little bit too far along. It says, behold, now the whole family has risen against your maidservant, meaning that the family's causing me trouble, this lady said, because they want me to hand over the one who struck his brother, that they may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed and destroy the heir also. So she's saying, for me, this is a struggle. I'm a widow. I have nobody to take care of me if I don't have sons. One son killed the other son. Now everybody's trying to get me to turn him over so that he can be executed, so that he will be killed for murdering his brother. And she basically comes back and says, who's going to be heir? In that time, understand the name was an important thing that it be passed down through the sons. The name of their father was about to stop. That's the story that she made up. And not only the name, but the land that goes with the name, the inheritance of God's people, it was about to disappear from this family. And if the sons are executed and the father's not around, then the life of this widow is about to get miserable. David's not a heartless man. He's listening and it's beginning to stir him. He said, thus they will extinguish my coal. And when you hear that language, and it's different in different translations, what she's saying is it's like there's this heat, there's this coal, there's this small burning ember that's there, that's left inside of me, so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant or face of the earth. She's saying, if this is taken from me, then my life is snuffed out. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house, I'll give orders concerning you. But she wasn't satisfied with that. She didn't know immediately what the king was going to say. He says, just go home, I'll make a decision. Well, she's not going to take that because that's not why she came. And so she says to the king, the woman of Tekoa said to the king, Oh, my Lord king, the iniquity is on me and my father's house, but the king, or is, I'm sorry, is on me, but not the throne uh, of the king because they are guiltless. What he's saying to the king is, she's saying, listen, I need you to make a decision. And you're not going to be guilty. You're the king. You can make a decision, king, about things concerning justice and righteousness. And she's begging the king for a decision not to send her away. So the king said, whoever speaks to you, bring him to me and he will not touch you anymore. So the king takes another step. Rather than send him away, he says, listen, 
If anybody confronts you and asks for your son or wants to condemn your son or wants to avenge the blood of his brother and wants to take his life, when you hear about it, you tell them to come to me. And when they come to me, he's basically saying, I'll make sure they leave you alone. But she's not even satisfied with that. Then she said, please, let the king remember the Lord your God so that the avenger of blood will not continue to destroy Otherwise, they will destroy my son. And so she's basically what she's doing, what you may not see there clearly, is that she's invoking the Lord and saying, will you make a promise to me on the Lord's name that he will not be harmed? Now see, here's where the king starts to realize he has an issue. Because if this young man is guilty, then what has he done? He's forgiven him without any price. He's pushed away the consequence of this man's sin, and he hasn't had to deal with it in any way. There has not been repentance. There has not been reconciliation. Nothing has occurred. There's been no confession. And listen, the law required certain things. At best, what the king could have said was, if he thinks he's innocent and nothing was done wrong, he says, listen, you could go to a city of refuge. And when you went to a city of refuge, remember how that went. If you could make it to a city of refuge, you could go to the priest in that city, and literally you could say to them, listen, I'm innocent of the blood that they're accusing me of. And as long as you were in that city, they would say, well, you know what? You're safe while you're here. We're going to adjudicate it. We're going to investigate it. We're going to figure out whether whether or not you were innocent or guilty. And if you were guilty, then we're going to turn you over to those people. But if you're innocent, then you can stay here as long as the high priest is alive. But you have to stay in the city and they cannot touch you. And after the high priest died, it was just the way the law was written, then you're free to go anywhere in Israel, and they cannot touch you. That was the option that the king had, to make sure that justice was delivered. But instead of doing that, he does exactly what she asks him to. And listen to his words, as the Lord lives. So now he's made a promise on the Lord's name, which is pretty much making it irrevocable. Not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now she has him cornered. Now she's going to flip it around because listen to what she says now. Then the woman said, well, please let your maidservant speak a word to my Lord, the king. So now that he's got the king being willing to just ignore the law, being willing to ignore consequence, being willing to ignore confession and repentance and reconciliation, he's thrown all that out. And just said, no one will harm him, even though he's done wrong. Now she says, let me ask you a question, king. And again, he's not realizing yet what's happening. She's set the trap. She's put the bait in place. He says, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty and that the king does not bring back his banished one. Do you see what she just did? She said, you'd be willing to bring back this man just because of my words, because of my tears, because of my begging, you're going to bring back this one who's been banished, but you won't bring back your own son. 
Now see, that sounds very godly, doesn't it? But in the midst of emotion, in the midst of our feelings, sometimes we miss where the devil perverts something. And he changes something just enough because she's going to go on and listen to what she's going to say. Now, the reason I've come to speak this word to my Lord, the King, is that the people have made me afraid. So your maidservant said, let me speak to the king. Perhaps the king will perform the request of his maidservant. So she lies again and says, well, all the people of Israel, they're concerned about Absalom. And I have this issue. So I thought I'd come bring all of them to you. That's a lie in itself. She says, now the reason I've come to speak this word to my Lord, the king, is that the people have made me afraid. Let me make this request. In 16 it says, For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of God. Then your maidservant said, Please let the word of my lord the king be comforting as the angel of God. So is my lord the king to discern good and evil. And may the Lord your your God be with you. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please don't hide anything from me that I'm about to ask you. And the woman said, let my Lord please speak. Basically, where we are in this story is that David has bought it hook, line, and sinker. She keeps weaving the tail and and, and being deceitful and, and making this web of deceit where she says, somebody sent me, but she hasn't said it's Joab yet. She says, this is still about my son, but it's also about your son, which is an absolute lie. She's starting to use flattery against the king, and she's telling the king, you know what? You're like an angel of God. You are able to discern right from wrong. King, when you speak, you're like an angel. You are going to do the right thing. Well, he's already made a commitment that he doesn't want to keep. He's already stated now that he's willing to forgive without reconciliation, without a change of heart, without any confession, without repentance. None of that seems to have mattered. And now she's saying, what about your own son? And here's the cherry on top. Doesn't God care about banished ones? See the truth in there? Does God care about banished ones? Does He care about the prodigal? Yes! But understand this, there is a difference with the prodigal. Because the prodigal got to the end of himself. The prodigal got to the point of repentance. And the prodigal got to the point where he was humble and he came back to his father and said, I'm not worthy of being placed back into your love, into this family. If you'll just make me a servant, that was his plan. There was this change in the prodigal that we have yet to see in Absalom. And so she's tugging at his heart and making him think, well, you know what? God would forgive. Why don't you forgive? That's what, he mean, that's what she means there. And see, right now, David, the light went off. Because he knows now, you know what? Someone is behind this. What woman is going to walk into my courts and question me about my son? Right? I mean, you realize that at some point it starts to kick in that, that this woman would never have the nerve to do this on her own. And so he says, can I ask you something? And she says, sure. Listen to the question. <laughs> Where's the question? Oh, there it is. Then the king said to Joab, behold, oh, I'm sorry. Where is the question? Where did I leave off? 19, thank you. So the king said, there you go. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? Now, the funny thing is Joab's probably in the room. He's a commander, a confidant of the king. 
The king don't have to go too far to talk to him, does he? Because he immediately just speaks to him. He's probably standing there, and he knows now that he has been duped. And he says, hey, lady, let me ask you a question. Is this really Joab? And you can imagine the fear in this woman, right? She probably laid a golden egg right there, worried about what the king was going to do. Because she immediately listened to her words. As my soul lives, my lord the king... No one could turn right or left. She's starting to give him flattery again from anything that you have spoken. Indeed, it was your servant Joab. So she throws Joab right under the bus quick, who commanded me. And it was he who put all the words in my mouth of your maidservant. So the line immediately stops. She realizes the king is on to me. And listen, at this point now, her life is in jeopardy. So she throws Joab under the bus. She rats him out in a quick minute. And he has to now turn to Joab and listen to what he says to Joab. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I will surely do this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. Then Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight. O my lord, the king, and the and that the king has performed the request of his servant. I hope what you fa- or that you see in this text is that the king really isn't happy about this decision. What the king feels is he really doesn't have a choice. And I want you to see that that the second point this morning is that when we deal with issues of conflict like this, the mistake that Joab made, I don't want us to make. And listen to what the mistake was. He chose to speak for God, I mean, for himself and not for God. I want to challenge you today, when you deal with issues, when you confront people, you better be sure that you are speaking for God and not yourself. You know what's missing from this text? Any prayer. Do you see it in here? He wants to go and make right whatever's wrong with David and Absalom, and he injects himself into this situation. He starts to meddle in the king's affairs. He could go to, I mean, listen, Joab could go to Absalom, couldn't he? He could have went and found him and said, listen, we need to talk. What you did was wrong. Even though your brother did this great sin, you had no right to go and kill him. Maybe you can find favor. Maybe you can find mercy. Maybe you can find grace. Get to a city of refuge. Let everybody know what happened and why it happened. And maybe you can find some salvation. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even have the nerve to go talk to the king. He, that was an option, wasn't it? to confront the king, to say that he had concerns and hear what the king had to say about why maybe he wasn't allowing his son back into the kingdom. He doesn't do any of it. He probably thinks that he's speaking for God, but really he's probably speaking for himself. You see, Joab had a lot at stake in this. When this family was unraveling, his life is bound up in this family. You realize that. He is the general. He is the confidant of the king. When he began to recognize that this family isn't unified, this family isn't well, this family isn't whole, he started knowing that there's going to come a day when maybe one of these sons are going to knock the king off the throne. These sons are killing each other. It's only a step or two away from them wanting to kill potentially me because I'm David's man. I believe there's probably a couple things that are happening. He probably genuinely loved David and thought he was helping. But there was a motive probably underlying that he was trying just as hard to help himself and set up his own future in the kingdom by ingratiating himself to Absalom. 
He should have went to David. He should have had the courage to go talk to Absalom himself. But instead, what does he do? He makes up a bunch of lies. You can't speak for God and speak a bunch of lies. There's a way to handle things, right? This wasn't just a story being told to get his interest peaked. I believe wholeheartedly that if this woman hadn't come clean and said it was Joab, they'd have just let the, the lie lay there. That's not God's will. That's not God's way. If we're going to speak, make sure that we are speaking for God. Ask God, should we even intervene in the situation that we are about to go intervene in? There is a difference between the way Nathan, because these stories are so similar. I wonder, did Joab look at what Nathan did to get a hold of David's heart, and he tried to duplicate it? Remember the ewe lamb? Now the two sons? You know what the difference is? There's a few differences. When Nathan went at King David, he went and reproved the king. He spoke the truth in love. Ultimately, he came out with directness and said, it was you, king. You're the one who has sinned. You're the one who had no compassion. You're the one, by your own words, should have to pay back four times. And what you did is worthy of death. That's confrontation, right? That's reproving and calling someone to repentance. We don't see that in this story. It's all just lies and deceit, trying to trick him and get him to make a decision that's based more on feelings and less on conviction and conscience. Nathan was looking for repentance. Joab's got a lot of self-interest bound up in this. He was thinking politically about his own future. And I want you to write this down because you're going to want to go back after I say it and make sure you're hearing me the way I'm saying it, okay? What Nathan did was he roused David's conscience over and above his feelings. Meaning that David, when he was sinning, he was bound up in his own feelings, his own wants, his own desires. And the prophet had to go in and find a way to get him to see he was wrong and then come back with conviction and with, with, with this understanding of, I have sinned, right? Trying to move him away from feelings to conscience or conviction. Well, Joab did it completely backwards. Joab, with this woman, roused David's feelings against his own conscience. So now David isn't doing what is right, what is good, what God would expect. He has taken David's feelings and got him driven by those, and now he forgives a fake person who doesn't even exist for a crime that he's responsible for where there's been no price paid, no justice served. And now because he's done it for this kid, he feels like he has to do it for his own son. And he's been cornered not to do something right, but to do something wrong. He's not speaking for God. He's speaking for himself because he's offering, as Warren Wearsby would put it, a forgiveness that ignores justice. And if you're offering a forgiveness that ignores justice, listen, it's all fake news. It's fiction. What God requires is for us to repent and turn from sin. Jesus died so that we might be forgiven. Never think for a moment that when God reconciled his banished ones, that he just looked at him and said, you're forgiven. It doesn't matter. There's no price. There's no penalty. I'm just going to act like it never happened. That's not the cross at all. 
You know what the cross demanded? That the wage of sin is what? Somebody had to pay the price of death. You are not forgiven because God just said, doesn't matter. You're not set free because you just got lucky one day and God was feeling sympathetic and said, you know what? We're just going to act like it didn't happen. Sin, it's, it's the, the wage of sin really isn't death today. We're going to let it go. No, anyone that has ever found forgiveness, it is because blood was shed on your behalf. The statement that Jesus made is true, that unless you repent, you will perish. Unless there is a turning back to God away from your sin and self until you confess and follow after Him. Listen, you are still stuck in your sins. His message bent the truth of God. What Joab did was an affront to what God would have had him do. That leads us to the third thing this morning. Meddling has its dangers, doesn't it? We all know because we've all meddled before and stuff that wasn't for us to meddle with. Getting involved in things that we don't understand, that we make too many accusations and we don't ask near enough questions. You ever been there? I love the way Proverbs puts it. Solomon, you always wonder, what did he watch that gave him this understanding? Maybe a scenario just like this. He said, he who passes by and meddles in a quarrel... This is Proverbs 26, 17. He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like a man who takes a dog by the ears. You're all going, that's weird. But think about it for a second. If you got two fighting dogs that are neither yours, you don't know them, they don't know you, and you're passing by and they're in a huge fight, when you go in there to try to separate them by grabbing one by the ears, what do you think is going to happen? All the attention is going to go off of them, and now it's going to be squarely on you, and you're going to get bit. And you're going to come away with major bumps and bruises. And you see, the reality was he meddled in something that he probably didn't fully understand. He never asked a question. He stuck his hands in between what he saw as a father fighting with his son And rather than truly dealing with the issue, he just fought for a cheap grace that didn't mean anything. Folks, you got to be careful in your life that you don't interfere in meddling things with the wrong motive. Doing it in the wrong way. Running into situations where you don't understand what is happening. Because all of us are quick to have opinions, aren't we? Probably the biggest mistakes that I've made in ministry are are literally things just like this, where I made an assumption because I never asked. Where I thought I knew what was happening, and I stuck my neck out there only to realize that I didn't know what was happening, and that I was wrong with all of my accusations, and that I actually didn't help near as much as I thought I did. I just ended up hurting everybody because I didn't know what I was talking about. You see, what really was probably happening at this point is David understood better than Joab that, listen, Absalom is already rebelling against the throne. Absalom's heart is angry and bitter. 
And if I bring them back into this land and into this kingdom at this point, it's not going to have a good ending. Things are not going to go well. He's, a, he's rebelled against the throne once. He'll do it again. It should have been clear to everyone that at this point in his life, he couldn't be trusted. Yet Joab used deceit. He persuaded David to let him come back to Jerusalem against David's own better judgment. And eventually this is going to do great harm to David, and we're going to see why that is. Because I want to talk lastly about the possibility of unintended consequences. We've used that term twice. Three times we get into these messes and we make decisions that aren't what God is asking us to do. We've not even consulted God. We've not even asked God. And we step into these arenas, whether it's the sexual sin of David, the sexual sin of Amnon, the murder uh, that Absalom commits, or any of these other things, even what Joab is doing here. God's nowhere in the middle of what is happening in this moment. And the unintended consequences are going to be tragic even with what we see right here today. It goes on and says, verse 21, we read it, Behold now, I'll surely do this thing. So David just relents. Go bring back Absalom. But listen to what it says in 23. Joab arose and he went to Geshur and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king, listen to what it says, let him turn to his own house and did not let him see or said, let him turn to his own house. Do not let him see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house, and he did not see the king's face. Now in all of Israel, this is a little side note, no one was as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There was no defect in him. Got a little Fabio description going here. When he cut his hair on his head, it was every year as he cut it, it was so heavy on him that it weighed roughly 200 shekels, which is about four pounds of weight of hair. So you can imagine this guy who has no defect. He is the most handsome person in all of the kingdom. And guess what the issue is now is that the people, because Absalom is back, now they're conflicted. What kind of king does Israel always seem to want? Oh, they love a handsome king, right? Isn't that how they got in the mess in the first place with King Saul? That they were looking at the Outward appearance where God says that He is concerned about the heart. Listen, how many times do we fall into that trap? We fall for a pretty face, right? Not realizing that the heart isn't there. It happens in dating all the time too. And God says you need to be concerned about the heart. That's probably why David was concerned about Absalom. That yes, he's a wonderful son, a beautiful young man, but listen, there is an issue with Absalom. And where is it? It's in his heart. And that's what the text is saying. So now the kingdom, guess what's starting to happen? It's starting to be divided because people are starting to gravitate towards Absalom. And David's still king on the throne. But listen to what else it says and how this finishes. It said to Absalom, there were born three sons and a daughter whose name was Tamar. So you can see that he still has very much Tamar on his heart. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and he never saw the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. So he sent again a second time, but he would not come. Therefore, he said to his servants, you see Joab's field over there next to mine? He has barley over there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose, came to Absalom at his house and asked him, why in the world are your servants setting my field on fire? 
Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent to you, saying, Come here, that I, may, uh, that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there is any iniquity in me, let him put me to death. So Joab came to the king, told him he called for Absalom. Thus, the king, thus he came to the king, prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. This is a great unraveling right here. You have no idea what is about to happen because of these moments that seem innocuous, that in some ways seem like a good thing. Folks, I want you to realize with me today that there is a possibility always when we don't do this God's way, when we meddle in things that are not ours to meddle, we haven't even sought God's will or His words, that we get back to this place of unintended consequences. For two years, Absalom is in Jerusalem and the king will not see him. How do you think that made Absalom feel? When he was in Gesher, how did they treat him? Like a king. Like royalty. He was a king on two fronts. He was the grandson to the king of Gesher. Here in Jerusalem, he was the heir apparent. He was next in line for the throne. And I want you to think about what happens in the heart of a man when you come back in and everybody says things are forgiven, but things aren't forgiven, are they? That everything is right, but it's, it's not right. For two years, he can't even go into the presence of his father. For two years, he's not asked one thing about the kingdom. He's not given any information about the kingdom. Literally, he's being ignored. He's sent to his own home and they're acting as if he is an absolute nobody. And what do you think is happening in his heart at this point? Whew. It's pouring gas on the rage that never really left. And what Joab thought he was doing such a good thing, now it's just getting worse, and it's just getting worse, and it's just getting worse. And finally, he decides, I'm going to do something about it myself. And he says, hey, Joab, where are you? Joab isn't answering. Why do you think Joab isn't answering? Oh, you can bet that King David stood him down when he got back. Can't you imagine that King David had to have looked at him and said, listen, don't ever put me in that position again. So now when Joab is called by Absalom, Joab's like, nope. He calls again, Joab's like, nope. The only way he could get Joab's attention was to go and set his fields on fire, which is basically like taking your wallet and setting it on fire. Now we got Joab's attention and he comes and is like, what are you doing? And he says, I need you to take a message to dad for me. And I want you to hear, this is, this is the problem. That he says to King David, you know what? Why didn't you just leave me where I was? Because at least there I was royalty. That's what he's saying. At least there they treated me like a king and I'm supposed to be heir apparent. That's what he's saying. That's what's underneath all of this. And then he has the audacity to look at his dad and say, and you know what? How about I come over there and if you think I've done something wrong, then you can put me to death. Think about that statement. What is not in that statement? There's no repentance. There's no, I'm sorry. 
There's no, what can I do to reconcile? None of that is there. He arrogantly and pridefully goes to his dad and simply says, if you're going to kill me, then just kill me. You tell me what you think I did wrong. He has no understanding of where his own heart is. And it is going to become a threat to the entire kingdom. Because I want you to know that David, with all of his feelings, because he's a dad, right? It's one thing to put your son at a distance when you don't have to see him, but when you have to see him, what happens? All that emotion flooded in and all he could do was hug his son and kiss his son. But the fields of Absalom's life, they're already on fire too. And I believe that even by this point, Absalom recognizes because there's another son named Solomon who was born to Bathsheba. He's very young at this point, but you understand that he's not the only one that could take the throne. And from everything he's looking at, he's thinking, it looks like most likely I won't be the one to take the throne. And he's coming up with a plan to kill his father. To take him off the throne. He is on a road where it's only going to get worse because there's no reconciliation. The anger is burning so hot inside of this young man that he will humiliate his father by sleeping with his wives out in the open and taking the throne from him. Church, we've got to make sure that we are right with God because we cannot be right with each other until we're right with God. And if you're going to help someone, if you're going to get in the middle of something, number one, like I said, be sure that God's in it. Be sure that your motives are pure. And when you go to speak to someone, if you're going to speak, go speak to them. Don't speak to another. Don't be deceptive. Don't send another. God is calling you to say something and He's going to ask you to go say it. Have the courage to love someone enough to speak the truth to them and to bring them back to repentance. It means that there are times we have to say, what you've done is wrong. But listen, God gives grace. And if you'll repent and if you'll believe and if you'll surrender yourself to God and plead for His mercy and grace, then restoration and reconciliation, all of those things can really begin to happen. But you know what, church? Instead of doing that, most times we just like to sweep things under the rug and we just want to hug and kiss and we just want to act like it's right. And when we haven't helped to make things truly right with courage, to confront situations in love, then guess what happens? We, we sweep it under and we think that it's gone and it's not. What's happening is it's burning underneath and it's burning underneath and it's burning underneath and it will catch fire again. As the musicians come this morning, I hope that we will learn, as we've said, from the mistakes of David. As much as we learn from the things that he's done right, there's a story that is being told of how we should live from the sins of a father to making sure we speak for God and not ourselves to making sure that if we're going to meddle, we're doing it because God has commanded us and that what we're saying is biblical and true and will bring healing and help to this individual. 
and recognize that if we don't do that, then you know what? We may be making things worse and not better. And so today, I hope that you'll think about the people in your life today. Where there is trouble, where there is strife, you can talk about them. You can talk to others about them. You can just complain about them. You can try to act like nothing's wrong when there is stuff that is deeply wrong. Or you can love people enough to speak the truth to them and to truly make sure that we're bringing about reconciliation in this world, in this life. Pray for those people that come to your mind that are hurting, that need help. Ask God to give you the courage to speak Scripture, truth, into their hearts and lives. And be sure that before you think you know what is happening, <laughs> ask questions before you make accusations so that you can understand where people are. It may not be what you think.